Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. We are currently in a series uh, called Five on Five, where we're looking at five lessons each on the first five books of the Bible. And so uh, we started a few weeks ago the book of Exodus, and we looked at Moses' uh, encounter with God through the burning bush. Today we're looking at another familiar story, Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. And so uh, we're looking at Exodus 14. It's a long passage. We're looking at verses 5 to 31. And so uh, we are considering this story through the lens of new creation. So that's the title of our sermon, A Lesson in New Creation. So at this time, if you are able, please stand with me. Why do we stand? Standing is an act of worship by which we read and receive God's word, giving reverence to the Lord who gave his word to us. So hear now his word, Exodus 14, reading verses 5 to 31. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, I said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from, the, from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Gracious Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for every part of it. We're thankful that you've chosen through this narrative uh, to reveal something to us about yourself and about us and the nature of our salvation. To help us to learn, help us to look not just for morals and good lessons, but to learn and to worship and to have our hearts yearn more and more for you as a result of encountering you now through your word. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Phil Reichen wrote a commentary on the book of Exodus, and he tells a story about a pastor who was preaching on the Red Sea crossing. And the pastor read the passage, exactly what I read today, and one man in the congregation stood up and shouted with great joy, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord for making all them children, taking all them children through the deep water. What a mighty miracle. Now, this particular preacher had long ago rejected miracles. He rejected the authority of the Bible. He thought it was full of myths and morals. And so, in a rather condescending tone, standing up at the pulpit, he looked down at the people and said, it was no miracle at all. The Israelites crossed no sea. They crossed just a shallow marshland when the tide was low. And that's why the chariots got stuck in the mud. I imagine the water wasn't any more than six inches high. The man stood right back up and shouted back, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He drowned all them Egyptians in just six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. Now, the man in the congregation had it absolutely right. The story of the Red Sea crossing is indeed a miracle. And as with all miracles, God's revealing something through it. On the one hand, we understand God is revealing his power his power over creation when he raised the waters and separated them to create the dry land for Israel. But the miracle also teaches us something about our salvation. You see, the Red Sea crossing is the paradigm. It's the pattern of redemption in the Old Testament. And so the rest of the Bible going into the New Testament actually looks back at the Red Sea crossing as the event that is foreshadowing this final fulfillment of salvation in Jesus. And so when we look at this story, we're learning something about the nature of our salvation, something about our salvation. What is that? Well, here's the central theme this morning. Salvation involves freedom from old slave masters and formation into a new creation. Salvation, your salvation today, if you are in Christ, involves freedom from old slave masters, and it involves formation into a new creation. Creation. And so let's dive right in and just see how the word unpacks this for us. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, in Exodus 7, God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Let my people go. 
Now, of course, Pharaoh is hard-hearted, and so he refuses, and that invites the 10 plagues upon Egypt. 10 awful plagues, but the 10th and final plague is the worst one. All of the firstborn in the entire land will die. And God follows through with this plague. And after God executes the plague, Pharaoh finally gives in. He declares in Exodus 12, 31, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. And so by the time we get to Exodus 14 today, Israel's already out of Egypt. They've left the land of slavery. They're free. But three days passes and Pharaoh has a lapse of memory. He forgets all that God did in the plagues and he regrets his decision. And he goes, oh no, we need to get them back. And so we read in verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. They said, what is this we have done that we have let them go? Now, remember, Israel's already out of the land. And so Pharaoh now has to go chase after them. He's trying to enslave them again. Verse seven, he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And he pursued the people of Israel. Now, Israel has a three-day lead over Egypt, but they're walking on foot. The Egyptians are coming with chariots and horses. And so it's not long before Egypt catches up. I mean, you can imagine the scene. One million Israelites, over one million Israelites walking through the desert by foot. I mean, you think like parking lot traffic on Black Friday or mall shopping during Christmas is bad. I mean, have you ever gone to a sports game at the Philly Sports Complex? and then left and tried to make it down to the septa train. I mean, it's mayhem, it's madness. And so imagine over a million people on foot, there's no road signs, there's no map, they're just following uh, fire and smoke. And so the Egyptians quickly catch up with them. And this is the scene where everything changes because we read in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, this is when the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. The Israelites see the Egyptians and immediately they fear them. Now, why would they fear the Egyptians? They should fear God. God just led them out of Egypt. God just showed them his incredible power in the plagues. And yet, at the sight of their old slave masters, their old slave mentality kicks back in. And the fear of God is quickly replaced with fear of man. They're more beholden to their slave masters than now to their savior and master. And this fear becomes so crippling to them. The sight of their old life, the sight of their old shackles and their old chains is so crippling. They actually go on to say this in, to Moses in verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The sight of these old slave masters, the Israelites feel completely helpless and powerless. They forget about their salvation and they think again that they're a slave nation. And so they admit defeat. These slave masters come back and they resign, they give up. They have no will to fight and to flee, to resist and to run. They just roll over. Now, what this has to say about the Israelites says something about Christians, something about the nature of the way in which when we are saved, we still too at the sight of our old life, of old temptations, of old idolatry, 
just roll over and give up. We are filled with great fear. Now, the way the Bible works, in the Old Testament, Israel's slavery in Egypt is a picture describing our bondage to sin. And the Bible says that every single person is born enslaved. You're born enslaved to sin, to your flesh, to idols, to lustful desires. This is, this is our nature. And so like Israel, we were all once slaves. You know, Jesus said in John 8, 34, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then when Paul talks about Christians before they were saved, he writes in Romans 6, you who were once slaves of sin, right? You were slaves of sin. And so then just as Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt, so the gospel says that those in Jesus are freed from slavery to sin. I mean, that's one way of understanding the gospel. Paul presents it that way, actually, in Galatians 5, where he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So here's the problem. The same problem with the Israelites is our problems. And it's not a problem with our salvation. Our salvation is complete. It's, it's perfect. It's been done by Jesus. And just as Israel left Egypt, so in Christ, you are definitively delivered from your sin. You are fully free from slavery to sin. So the problem isn't with the gospel. The problem isn't with your salvation. It's whether you are living out the gospel. It's whether you are living out your salvation. So let me ask you this question. If you are a Christian here today and you said, Jesus has freed me from my sin, are you living as one saved in Christ or are you living as one enslaved to sin? You see, when, when Pharaoh shows up, Israel looks up and behold, they're instantly filled with fear. They insta instantly lose hope. They feel defeated. And I think this describes uh, Christians so well. When temptations appear again on the horizon, when idols resurface, when sins try to lure you again, maybe that person you rode with back in the day comes back into your life. Maybe when you're put in a situation where the same stressors and circumstances are something that was familiar in the past, it's so much easier to give up and to give in to sin and sinful ways than it is to flee and to fight. And the psychology of this, I really believe, is because for some reason in our sin, we are convinced there's actually safety in our slavery. Now, what do I mean by that? We've lived so much of our lives not knowing Christ, in bondage to sin, that the ways that we used to respond to situations, the way that we are used to escaping or running away or hiding or forgetting or denying, all of these things feel so familiar to us. They feel safe to us because we did them for so long. And this is why when old slave masters come again, they wield such incredible power over, to, over us. Now, some of you may have seen uh, the film Shawshank Redemption. It's a classic. Uh, it's been like 25 years. And so if you haven't seen it, you know, it's, I can spoil it. I don't feel guilty. Um, but it's just, there's a subplot in, in the movie. Uh, Shawshank is a state prison and all those sentences there have been there uh, for a very long time. And at one point in the movie, an older gentleman uh, named Brooks is set free. But here's the thing about Brooks. He entered prison in 1905 when he was 23 years old. He is freed from prison in 1975, 50 years later, and he's 73 years old. He's given his freedom finally, but he doesn't know how to adjust to life outside of Shawshank. 
his freedom actually is scary to him. His freedom is his struggle. It's strange. And sadly, what happens is Brooks decides to take his own life. Now, there's a portion of the film where he begins to uh, narrate a monologue where he reads out his own letter. And this is what Brooks says. He says, I can't believe how fast things move on the outside. I saw an automobile once when I was a kid, but now they're everywhere. The world went and got itself in a big hurry. I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Sometimes it takes me a while to remember where I am. Maybe I should get me a gun and rob the foodway. So then they'd send me home. See, Brooks all his life only knew life as a prisoner in Shawshank. So Shawshank is his home. It's all he knows and therefore his freedom is scary. And it's the prison bars that are comforting. And you know what's true of Brooks and is true of the Israelites is often true of us as well. You know, in Christ, there's new freedom, but sometimes it's hard to live in the new freedom. We're more comfortable living in sin. It's more familiar to us. For us, it provides some kind of safety bars. But the message of salvation is that you've been delivered from that. You know, because the Christian message isn't just about, oh, you've been saved, and so the there and then is changed. You're on a road, and it's rerouting, and now heaven is your new destination. I mean, that is true. But salvation certainly has something to say about life now, life here. That these old sinful patterns that once gripped you and enslaved you and shackled you have now been severed by Christ. And that's why Moses says to Israel in verse 13, he says, fear not, stand firm and see the Yeshua of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. Salvation, that, that Hebrew word is Yeshua. And from Yeshua is where we get Jesus. And so Moses, in effect, is saying to the Israelites, don't be afraid of your old slave masters. No longer fear them. Behold, look at the salvation of the Lord. Look at the Jesus of the Lord. Behold Christ, for there is your freedom. And that's the promise of Jesus. Yes, he comes and he forgives you of your sins, but he frees you from sin. And so his promise in John 8 is this. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Salvation means freedom from slavery to sin. If you are in Christ here today, you are released from the power and the influence of old masters over you. You're called to live in a new freedom, no longer a mere victim to temptation and helplessly surrendering and obeying your old nature. You are called to live in a new way. How? How does that happen? Well, actually, because salvation doesn't just set you free from your old slave masters, it actually forms you to be a new creation. And we see that today in an amazing way. You know, Exodus 14 was written by Moses. And Moses, he's a prolific author. He, he also wrote Genesis. And so when Moses writes Exodus 14, he's already, he's already aware of what he's written in Genesis 1. And so what he begins to do is he takes themes and images from Genesis 1, and he begins to apply it to Exodus 14. Why? What is Genesis 1 about? Genesis 1 is about creation. And so when Moses chooses to use the expressions, the, the um, images, the themes of Genesis 1, and he applies it in Exodus 14, what he's showing is that what's happening in Exodus 14 is a new creation. And so let me just show this to you. In Exodus 14, verse 20, the NIV says this. 
Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. And so in Exodus, in the Red Sea Crossing, God is separating light and darkness. Sound familiar? In Genesis 1, and God saw that the light was good, God separated the light from the darkness. And then in Exodus 14, we also read this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So he separates darkness and light, and then he separates water from water. And in Genesis, we read, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above and above the expanse. But God does a work far greater than separating light and darkness and water from water. What is the main miracle? Well, God commands Moses in verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. He's separating the water from the land. And we read in Genesis, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Moses brilliantly is intentionally including details from Genesis and putting him in Exodus 14 to show that when Israel is passing through the Red Sea, they're being made a new creation. They're being set free from bondage to old slave masters and made into something new. And that's what salvation is. Yes, it's a rerouting of your eternal destiny and you're going to end up in heaven and not in hell and praise God for that. But it means right here and right now, you today, if you are in Christ, are new. This is what Paul says when he presents the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 or 17. And he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you are in Christ, you're new. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. You see, friends, when you're saved in Christ, when you pass through the waters of baptism, like Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, your identity changes. You're now defined and identified by your newness, not your oldness. Not what you once were, not what you once did, but who you now are in Jesus. You're not simply refurbished and fixed. You're made new. Now, I'm not one to get car washes or do car washes. I don't, I don't appreciate it. I find it to be intrusive. And, and so I delay them. But, you know, every once in a while, winters are so bad and the roads are so salted that salt begins to cake up on your car. And when that happens, I'll take my car in to get a car wash. Now, I like those automatic car wash places. They're simple, right? You, you pull in, you follow the lights, you park your car here, and then you press a button. Everything begins to happen. Soap is dispensed and it lathers your car and, and it rinses your car. And if you pay a little more, it'll dry your car. In a few minutes, your passes and your car emerges out of the water looking brand new. Now, what if I told you there was a new car wash that opened up? Not the one on 202 and 63, but, but a brand new car wash, a gospel-centered car wash. And what makes this car wash so special is that when you take your car into the water, as it passes through the water, it doesn't come out on the other side looking brand new, but it actually comes out on the other side brand new. And some of you are going, well, could I send my husband through that? <laughs> through that? But Now, what if this car wash was somehow able to deliver a completely brand new car on the other side? Right? Not a cleaner version of the same old car. Because sometimes your car has AC troubles and the brakes are squeaking and the headlight is out and you pass through the water and you come out looking brand new, but you got the same old issues. But what if you came out brand new? 
You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply that you are washed of your sins. You are. Not simply that you are cleared of guilt. You are. Not simply that your shame is covered. You are. But it's the good news that you are made brand new in Christ. You have new desires, new loves, a new power. That's important because when old slave masters come, when old memories flood your head, when old accusations begin to prick at your heart, when old friends show up, when old stressful circumstances appear and you're tempted and you feel powerless to fight and to flee, you must know the Lord has made you new and has given you new power new strength. At the end of the story in verse 31, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So they no longer feared the Egyptians, but then they started fearing the Lord. That new power, that great power that was was at work for Israel is the great power that's at work in you. But how do you have access to that? How does that actually become yours? It's not simply by willpower. Have you ever tried to diet? (laughs) You know how feeble your own willpower is. It must come by a different power. And it becomes yours as you are made a new creation, as you pass through the waters, safely by the intervention of another. What do I mean by that? In this story, interestingly, the Red Sea represents two things. Yes, it represents salvation, but it also represents judgment. Because Israel passed through the Red Sea and they were saved. But Egypt passed through the Red Sea and they were judged. Now, how does that happen? Because in fact, both parties were guilty. In fact, Israel, as they're facing the Red Sea, what are they saying? God, why'd you take us out of Egypt? You should have kept us in there. It would have been better to serve them. I mean, they are sinning against God. And yet, what's the difference that Israel passes and is saved? Egypt stays and they are judged. What's the difference? It's not because Israel was better, more holy, were more obedient. How was it that Egypt was swept away, but Israel was saved? It has nothing to do with Israel. It has everything to do with God. Did you notice this little verse? It seems a little out of place, but look with me at verses 19 and 20. Then the angel of the Lord, of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. This angel of God, this mystery figure shows up and he who was leading Israel from ahead of them now moves behind them. And that's important because when he moves behind them, he's now positioning himself between Israel and between Egypt. And what he's doing is he's entering the Red Sea. He is standing in the same place of judgment where Israel is supposed to stand. And he lets Israel go ahead that they might be saved. And it's only as Israel passes through the Red Sea that the judgment waters then proceed to fall on everybody else still there. You see, dear friends, the angel of God who stood in the sea of judgment is none other than the Son of God who stood in the seat of judgment when he died on the cross so that you and I might be spared and saved. Jesus came from up ahead of you to move behind you, to stand in your place to stand as your substitute where you should have been. And he ultimately endured God's wrathful judgment 
in your place when he took the cross for you and he took the curse for you. And just as the water judgment fell upon the Egyptians, the wrathful judgment fell upon Christ. Your salvation, it's bound up in his sacrifice. So that if you trust in him today, you know that through what he has done, you are led from death to life, slavery to freedom. You are made a new creation. So Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Dear friends, if you come to Jesus this morning, if you freely admit your need of a Savior, he removes all judgment from your guilt. He breaks all enslaving power of sin over you, and he makes you new. Let me close with this. This morning, when you looked in the mirror, what did you believe about yourself? I think many of us fall short of understanding the true power of this good news are you the same old sinner you once always were, but now you're just loved and forgiven? Or are you brand new? You see, if you understand your brand newness in Christ, you will never let certain things define you. What you once did, what you once were, what was once done to you, who you once spent time with, the places you once visited, the things you once said. Those things are not who you are because you are no longer a slave to sin. But you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. If you believe that, things begin to change because the gospel gives you power and resolve to heed the words of Ephesians 4. Put off your old self. Put it off which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Dear friends, put off the old, put on the new, for you are no longer a slave to sin or to death or to fear, but you are a new creation in Jesus Christ, loved, redeemed, adopted. You are a new creation you are a child of God. That's what it means to be saved. Let's pray.